Alert Medic 1 respond. You're listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. podcast. My name is Mustafa Sadiq. And I'm Ken Sander. Thank you for joining us today on our final uh, part of our airway management series. Today we're going to be discussing uh, surgical airways with our medical director, Dr. David Bitberg. Good morning. Surgical airways, I think, are the procedure that are the most um, sensationalized and just one of those things that a paramedic wants to do but never wants to do. And if they find themselves in a situation where they actually have to do it, I would wager to say that most end up not doing the procedure just because of everything that goes around it, right? Yeah, so in my experience, when we're talking about or reviewing cases where either there was consideration to perform a surgical airway or a surgical airway was performed, one of the universal themes that emerges is a reluctance to do so because of the sacred nature of cutting into the neck and the fear of all the review and paperwork that's going to follow And the fact of the matter is, you know, it's a much easier procedure than I think a lot of people make it out to be, but it's much more difficult if you start thinking about all the downstream things that you're going to have to do to document the procedure to potentially justify why you did the procedure. Uh, That said, uh, particularly when I review these cases, both in the field and in the hospital, they're performed too late. And if you're going to uh, save a patient's life by performing a surgical airway, My personal take on it is that if you were thinking about it and you eventually did it, while you were thinking about it, you probably should have been preparing or starting to do it a few minutes ago, earlier than when you started thinking about it. Uh, Because usually contemplation of performing a surgical airway starts to emerge in the can't intubate, can't ventilate patient uh, where there's been multiple attempts at trying to secure an airway the person's already had a significant amount of time of uh, poor cerebral perfusion, hypoxemia. So one of the pearls I I would put on this podcast today is if you are thinking about it and you feel confident with your skills and you are properly trained and credentialed to do so, you need to start preparing and you need to start doing it. From a clinical management standpoint, what are some vital signs that you would see with these patients and what are so how is the patient actually presenting that we should have done it five minutes ago highly variable we can easily brainstorm and come up with 10 different clinical vignettes of what these patients look like Mm -hmm. but typically patients that are profoundly hypoxemic will become increasingly bradycardic and or progress to cardiac arrest and ideally we want to get into these patients' airways and secure their airway before we're in an arrest situation where, you know, there's a lot more movement, compressions are ongoing, um, and kind of the acuity ramps up even further. The primary thing we're going to see is hypoxemia, often progressing to malignant cardiac dysrhythmias and bradycardia. You know, the other thing too is if the patient has not been ventilated for a significant amount of time, their partial pressure of carbon dioxide will be growing in their blood, their pH will be dropping, and, and that in and of itself will predispose the patient to becoming hypotensive and often hypotensive refractory to fluid boluses and and other medications. So what we're talking about is a patient in extremis that is profoundly hypoxemic, that is developing bradycardia and malignant dysrhythmias and becoming increasingly hypercarbic, pH is dropping, enzymes in the body aren't working, cardiovascular collapse. 
So I've got a patient. I can't ventilate. I can't intubate. I make the decision, okay, it's time. We need to perform a crike. What are my landmarks that I'm looking for? When I look at the patient's neck, I need to do a surgical crike. What do I need to know? So we've talked a little bit about this with regard to just good old-fashioned intubation. You really want to take an extra second, even though seconds count, to properly positioning your patient. You want to, if possible, have their neck in a neutral or slightly extended position, provided there are no cervical spine restrictions, which often there are, because often there are, these are trauma patients. So we kind of want them in a, in a good kind of midline position. And then, you know, when we do cadaver labs and we teach surgical airways locally, we talk about landmarking on each other and practicing. And, and probably the most important thing to learn how to do is to do a handshake with the kind of midline airway structures and run your fingers down and identify where the thyroid cartilage is. So this tends to be very, very prominent or more prominent in males, less so in females. And if you can identify the the larger thyroid cartilage with your thumb and your middle finger and leave your index finger to kind of walk down the middle of the neck, as you pass the thyroid cartilage, you'll come into a divot between the thyroid cartilage and the cricoid cartilage. And that is your target for where you're going to insert the surgical airway. When we post this episode, we'll have attached that picture of anatomy just so people can associate with that. It's important to learn how to kind of run your, especially your thumb and your middle finger down the center of the airway and grasp the thyroid cartilage and have your index finger palpate for the cricoid and thyroid and find the cricothyroid membrane because you'll often want your surgical instrument, your scalpel in your dominant hand, which for a lot of us is right. So you want to be stabilizing and doing the handshake with the airway with your left hand and stabilizing it as you make your incision. Great. And with that, can you kind of walk us through the difference between a surgical or open cricothyrotomy and then a needle cricothyrotomy? Yeah, so not to toot my own horn, but my very, very first publication ever, if you Google my last name, Vitberg, was in GEMS, and it was called Cracking Down on Crikes. And it was an article that I wrote with uh, some of my mentors in medical school at Syracuse uh, from the Department of Emergency Medicine about the difference between a needle cricothyroidotomy and a surgical crike. Quite simply, a needle cricothyroidotomy is the insertion of a large bore needle through the cricothyroid membrane, removal of the needle and leaving the hollow catheter in its place, and infusing oxygen through that catheter. Now, you typically, when you do a needle cricothyroidotomy, cannot achieve chest rise and fall. So there's all these MacGyver videos on the internet and YouTube that kind of demonstrate how to take the top of the endotracheal tube, the adapter, and hook it up to the angiocath that's typically used for a needle cricothyroidotomy. But what you'll find is when you squeeze that bag, it's virtually impossible to get enough flow to achieve chest rise and fall. Most protocols have you do a needle crike and attach oxygen to that needle. And what you're doing there is providing apneic or passive oxygenation. You're basically flowing oxygen down through that catheter into the tracheobronchial tree, into the alveoli. And it's important to note that oxygen enters the bloodstream via the process of diffusion. You do not need chest rise and fall for oxygen to enter the bloodstream. So you're doing, you're temporizing the patient by oxygenating them. When you do a needle cricothyroidotomy, you are often not able to affect chest rise and fall. And as such, you are unable to ventilate them. So while you may be able to get oxygen in and keep SATs up, 
you are going to see a steady rise in their partial pressure of carbon dioxide in their bloodstream. And unless you get them somewhere quickly where they can either have a surgical airway or intubation or in any way, shape or form achieve ventilation, CO2 will rise, pH will drop and that patient will become unstable. There are articles that you can pull and read that will say, when I do this in a pediatric patient, I can squeeze that bag and get chest rise and fall. That's absolutely right. The smaller the patient, the smaller the airways, the more likely through that small catheter, you may be able to squeeze a tidal volume and get some chest rise and fall. In the adult population, absolutely not. You're never, ever going to be able to achieve a good squeeze and get chest rise and fall unless you work in that unicorn system that carries a jet ventilator, which I explained to my residents is the same as uh, what you inflate your tires with at the gas station. A jet ventilation system attaches to a needle catheter in the neck and you squeeze it and it provides a quick burst of air that rapidly inflates the lung, carries with it many toxicities, barotrauma. So you're, you're much more likely to cause a pneumothorax when you use a jet ventilator. You are much more likely to get uh, catheter dislodgement as you insufflate that quick high pressure gas, have that catheter back out. And with that, you're much more likely to get subcutaneous emphysema running up the neck, uh, surrounding the facial structures, causing the eyes to swell shut down the chest. And then actually, if you look at the literature on uh, percutaneous jet ventilation through a needle in the neck, there are actually a fair amount of occupational eye injuries in EMS providers that aren't wearing proper eye protection. When they squeeze that thing, the catheter isn't properly secured and it kind of pops out uh, into their eyes. So make sure when you're doing any airway procedure, specifically if you work in a system that actually uses a jet ventilator, always wear eye protection. So, so that's your needle crike. Surgical crike is you are actually making an incision in the neck, uh, usually centered over the cricothyroid membrane and through the cricothyroid membrane and inserting a larger caliber tube, i.e. even if it's a small endotracheal tube, it's significantly larger than a large angiocath. And through that tube, you can do all the traditional oxygenation and ventilation that you would do through a normal ET tube. Some systems go right to inserting a tracheostomy versus an ET tube, which I would argue is actually safer and easier and sits uh, better on the neck and can be secured much more readily during uh, EMS transport. Uh, I hope that clarifies the difference between a needle crike, a temporizing measure, and a surgical crike, which is a definitive procedure to secure a patient's airway. Yeah, I think that's some, some great discussion there. You mentioned uh, tracheostomy tubes. So with that, can you kind of explain the difference between a, a surgical crike and an actual tracheostomy to us. I'm going to keep this very simple in the interest of time. When we in the field do a surgical airway, we're doing a surgical cricothyroidotomy. We are typically stabilizing the trachea. We are making a vertical incision centered over the cricothyroid membrane. A lot of us then will rotate our scalpel and then go right through the cricothyroid membrane, open up that hole and insert a tube. Okay. That is a surgical airway, just down and dirty, simple. A tracheostomy is the term that is typically used for controlled insertion of a tracheostomy in the hospital setting, typically by a surgeon or an ENT surgeon. And typically the incision and the purchase into the trachea is made much, much lower through second, third tracheal rings and not through the cricothyroid membrane. Great. Thank you. That was a fantastic explanation of the different procedures that Oftentimes, we don't know the difference of. Can you go into uh, some of the complications that a paramedic might see, you know, once they've decided to actually do the procedure, what are some of the, some of the things that may make it harder for them to do the procedure and some of the complications once they 
uh, done it. Yeah. So the hardest thing will be is if you haven't trained. You know, we talk a lot about things on this podcast that are low frequency, high acuity. I would even argue that endotracheal intubation is becoming much lower frequency in your higher acuity patients. So anytime you talk about a low frequency, high acuity skill, you best have a training schedule set up where you are pulling this equipment out and you are holding it in your hand and you are simulating it as realistically as possible frequently. And what that means to you and your agency, I'm not sure. Frequently means to me, you know, maybe monthly, bi-monthly, especially when it comes to one of these potentially life-saving procedures. So what's going to cause a problem for a paramedic? Simply not doing this enough in a simulated setting or the, or the real setting. We, we all know that this isn't happening uh, very frequently in the field. Second thing, you know, just off the top of my head is, of course, not landmarking things properly, particularly when you're challenged with an obese patient or you can't actually, in your fingers, feel that thyroid cartilage and that cricothyroid ring and the cricothyroid membrane and making your, your vertical incision too high or too low. So landmarking, uh, again, that, that becomes easier with practice. It also becomes easier, so I'll, I'll often teach students when they're learning how to listen to lung sounds, you listen to every patient's lung sounds and you will recognize normal over and over again. And then when you see abnormal, you go, wow, this is abnormal. I haven't heard this before. And you'll learn what that abnormal is. Every opportunity you have to do kind of quick 30-second training at the station and you walk up, you may want to warn your colleagues about this and walk up and grab their neck and run your finger. Because think about in the fire service, the EMS service, all the different shapes and sizes that we come in. This is a quick down and dirty five-minute training at shift change, roll call, whatever it's called in your jurisdiction. And maybe, you know, one day it's tourniquets, one day it's surgical airway landmarking. Take every opportunity you can to do surface anatomy review in all different shapes and size patients. Third thing that I would think about as far as complications, you know, the thyroid itself and the thyroidal arteries sit proximal to where we're performing this procedure. The thyroid is the metabolic factory for your body and the blood flow to the thyroid tissue and through the thyroid arteries is significant. And if you accidentally make a, a particularly a large horizontal incision and you hit the thyroids, the thyroidal artery, thyroidal tissue, uh, you can see an excessive amount of bleeding, which can kind of shoot you in the foot and obscure the field you're working in and make it difficult to deliver a tube through the cricothyroid membrane. Uh, similarly, you have your external uh, jugulars and then your IJ, your internal jugulars and your carotids in that area. And making overzealous too far horizontal incisions can cause a lot of excessive bleeding. So I would say, you know, uh, inadequate training, Inadequate familiarization with the equipment. Again, you got to know the equipment that you have in your bag. What is your surgical airway equipment? There are 50 different uh, companies that make these very unique surgical airway kits. Uh, there are a lot of jurisdictions like ours and the hospital I work in that we kind of just put together our own. You got to know your equipment. You got to have it in your hands. You've got to train with it. And then you just got to be careful of knowing how to landmark and where to make your incisions so as to avoid uh, bleeding complications. And then I'd say the very last thing as far as complications, when actually inserting the airway, particularly in a, in a deep neck, an obese neck, even in the skinny folks, pushing that tube, whatever tube you're putting in, into a false lumen and starting to uh, squeeze your BVM. And you should pretty quickly recognize that because usually the patient's neck, face, chest puffs up with subcutaneous emphysema. That by all means is not a comprehensive list of complications. I would say that's just a kind of a top three or four. 
And to your point, uh, just one last thing, it, it is important to remember that we should be confirming not only with lung sounds, but also end tidal CO2 waveform capnography. We harp on this over and over in this series, the critical importance of not only initially confirming airway placement, whether it be an SGA, uh, an infraglottic airway like endotracheal intubation, surgical airway, needle crack, I don't care what you are putting into the airway, critically important, the gold standard for confirmation is end tidal and end tidal tracing at this point. And, and in the environment that we work and live in, moving patients from the floor to the stretcher, the stretcher to the medic unit, the medic unit to the ED, our stretcher to the ED stretcher, there are so many opportunities for tube displacement that we need to have that continuous waveform capnography in place. And don't forget, too, that continuous waveform capnography is a great window into helping with uh, kind of diagnostics and, and generating differentials for many other problems in our medical patients. Particularly, the biggie is you need cardiac output to generate entitled CO2. And if you have a critically ill patient and your entitled CO2 numbers start going down, your cardiac output is directly reflected into that absolute numerical value of entitled CO2 that you get. And again, we can talk about entitled CO2 for a full hour, uh, but critically important, particularly in the surgical airway situation, to quickly get that adapter on and monitor waveform capnography. With that said, these tend to be a little bloody. Uh, these tend to be a little messy because we're not working under pristine circumstances like the cadaver lab or the hospital. Uh, sometimes you may need to change that inline adapter, that filter out, maybe once or twice during the course of transport to get a good quality capnography waveform. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us in this discussion. We really appreciate your time. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, leave us a rating and review on whatever your podcast app of choice is. Don't forget to check out our website, alertmedic1.com, and please join us again next week for another great discussion. Thank you very much. That's all for now. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.